Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. With the continued pressure on improving housing affordability across the continuum of private, affordable and social housing sectors, the BTR sector has the potential to support a new class of property that is specifically designed and built to be held for rental. Today, in part one of our two-part podcast, Sarah Shaw and me, Tessa Livingston, will identify the key state taxation challenges and opportunities for BTR developments. In part two, our colleagues Matt Irvin and Rebecca Lawrence will identify the key income tax and GST issues. I will begin by asking Sarah various questions concerning what BTR developments generally include. Sarah will then have the pleasure of asking me about the various stamp duty, land tax and surcharge concessions and exemptions that are available, the timing of such state taxes relief and whether available pre, during and post construction. Hello to you, Sarah. Hello, Tessa, and thank you very much for the introduction. So, every day in the business news, BTR is discussed and it seems to be a key topic in political conversations, including at the recent property summit in the New South Wales budget, the Victorian housing statement and at the federal government. Sarah, to provide some context for our listeners, firstly, can you please help us to understand what BTR is? To set the scene, currently more than one in four Victorians are renters and that climbs to one in three when considered nationally. The sector is in its infancy in Australia, particularly when compared to strong growth in this housing model in the USA, Canada and the UK. But there is growing activity. Some of the existing BTR project pipeline has arisen due to special circumstances, such as distressed site sales, although this is not true in all cases. The pipeline of projects includes an increase in the supply of rental properties in the inner middle ring suburbs of Melbourne, and the potential to more broadly apply across Victoria, including in key regional areas. BTR provides institutional investors with an asset that has the characteristics of economic infrastructure, including stable long-term returns. This is one of many characteristics which makes BTR different from build to sell. Can you please tell us a little bit more about the key differences between BTR and build to sell, which people may be more familiar with? Yes, there are several. For example, in terms of Development focus? For BTR, the development is for rental as compared to build for sale. For investment returns, BTR is designed to provide steady annual income growth as compared to one-off capital gain for build to sell. For investor type, for BTR, it is generally institutional capital or debt compared to various investors for build to sell. The scale also varies. For BTR, it is generally 50 plus apartments, whereas build to sell varies. And then the phases of the project. For BTR, this involves delivery and operation as compared to delivery alone for build to sell. It seems that BTR is a term that's used very broadly. Is there a defined term for BTR? As you'd expect, every state and territory has its own BTR definition. However, there are some common themes on what BTR is, at least for state taxes relief eligibility purposes. The first one is a development purpose that is built for long-term rental. That is, it must be an asset that is designed, constructed and delivered with a primary intention of holding the investment for long-term residential tenancies. 
the jurisdictions vary as to whether vacant land is required or whether there can be a conversion from offices into dwellings. For example, in Queensland and Victoria, relief includes where there has been substantial renovation and conversion as eligible projects. But don't forget, in affecting any conversions, there is windfall gains tax in Victoria on rezonings and the lease variation charge in the ACT to consider. Secondly, there must be a minimum duration period. That is, it must be a development or component of a development dedicated to residential tenancies for at least 15 years. Some in the industry do not support a minimum holding period, for example, on the basis it undermines flexibility and liquidity of the asset, but the state taxes relief do include minimum ownership and operation periods. So in addition to the development purposes and some minimum duration periods, what other common requirements do you see in the state and territory definitions? Yes, there are a couple more. There must be minimum scale requirements. Again, some in the industry consider a development or component of a development with at least 100 dwellings is required. Others express a view that a minimum of 50 rental apartments is required, provided the land tax concession is achieved. I understand, Tessa, you also cover um, in your discussion that the most common minimum requirement for relief is 50 rental dwellings. However, this 50 minimum can remove opportunities that could take place in regional Victoria, including centres such as Ballarat and Bendigo. Further, there are requirements concerning the ownership, control and management of the asset. Specifically, it must be in an asset that is under single ownership, control and management. However, there can be ex- exceptions to this where there is a separate manager in respect of the affordable and social housing components when compared to the app market or premium components. Further, there must be residential tenancies. That is, there must be residential tenancies as defined under the Residential Tenancy Acts and that minimum lease options are provided to tenants of at least three years, noting the tenant may choose to select a shorter tenure. This type of limitation excludes health or residential services, educational institutions, short-term rentals less than 60 days, for example, service apartments, holiday homes, and site agreements such as those offered in manufactured housing estates. Lastly, it is also interesting the differences between the jurisdictions as to whether an affordable or social housing component is required in order to access the state taxes relief. I understand that there is a spectrum of properties that come within the BTR umbrella. Can you please highlight what these properties or subclasses are? Yes, BTR can encompass a range of built forms, including developments that cater to the premium or high end of the market. Such projects may include luxury oversized apartments, views, high quality finishes, retail and childcare services, aquatic centres and resort style facilities, indoor and outdoor swimming pools, gyms, spas and saunas, and often these are exclusive to residents only. There may also be a dedicated on-site building manager, and generally the projects are close to transport links. Then there is volume housing to the middle market, with potentially a premium service and amenity offering. In this case, the rent is at market rent, and it's not affordable, it's not luxury, but still offering premium locations and a higher quality service than currently provided by small landlords and real estate agents. And then lastly, there is the potential for the project to be a platform for affordable and or social housing under certain circumstances. In our experience, we have seen siloed as well as combinations of these BTR asset subclasses. And on this last point, some industry members suggest that affordable and social housing 
should not be mandated for BTR projects for purely private market developments. In contrast, where the project is in collaboration with a State Department, the affordable and social housing components can be included, but the premium component generally needs to be included to make the project financially viable. BTR certainly can provide a broad offering of properties. So with this type of asset, what type of industries are typically involved? Well, increasingly, we are seeing a combination of government, not-for-profit and for-profit organisations. Our clients represent all of these industry participants. As you'd expect, the participants are builders and developers, financiers, institutional investors and superannuation funds, community housing providers and charitable bodies, and tenancy managers and building management teams. Are you able to provide us with a snapshot of current BTR projects around the country? At the moment, much of the current development is occurring in Victoria. In 2022, Victoria accounted for 63% of the national BTR stock, owing to the completion of several major projects, including Grocon's Home Apartments in Richmond and Southbank, Blackstone's Realm Project in Caulfield, and Mervac's LIV Munro at Queen Victoria Markets. The sector has also seen notable growth in Brisbane. Earlier this year, Lendlease announced its partnership with Canadian real estate investment company Quad Real Property Group for the development of a 443-unit tower at Brisbane Showgrounds. This will be the first BTR project in Australia for both Lendlease and Quad Real. Another example of global investment in BTR is the Indie BTR platform, which is led by global real estate investor Oxford Properties. Indie currently has a portfolio of three BTR developments in Footscray, Southbank and Sydney, totaling 1,300 individual units. So why isn't everybody getting involved in BTR projects? Yes, there are various factors for this, Tessa. As an example in Sydney, the BTR industry is being held back by the high price of land and lack of viable sites. This is where land release programs and broader planning amendments by the states can assist. In addition, construction cost is regarded as one of the biggest hurdles to development. This also applies to build to sell. Then it needs to be considered the yields required to make a BTR sustainable, that is the investment return required. BTR will only be able to grow at scale where it can provide an equivalent or better risk-adjusted return than alternative development opportunities. Currently, BTR is not self-sustaining, as the return profile and scale of investment required have not yet attracted critical mass of Australian superannuation funds. Industry members have stated that the type of stable returns required for large, long-term capital allocations is in the order of income of 4 to 6% and investment of 8 to 11% ungeared per annum over 10 years. That's very interesting. What about the level and type of investment that's required? Are there issues in obtaining sources of finance or investment? Yes, absolutely, Tessa. Due to the scale and investment required, potentially around 150 to 300 million, BTR projects are very capital intensive and require a significant level of debt and equity. Currently, we are seeing investor and financier participation mainly from offshore. Offshore participants are much more used to this asset class, and from a financing perspective, it is considered very difficult to be a first-generation investor without seeing evidence of the required scale and liquidity. As a result, foreign capital is likely to be required to to get the BTR sector up and running, and there will be an ongoing requirement for wholesale and institutional foreign capital, given the capital-intensive nature of the BTR sector. 
Further, there also needs to be confidence that a deep secondary market exists. In Victoria and New South Wales, the foreign surcharge duty exemptions, in contrast to the land tax relief, do not apply to acquisitions of interest in completed and operating BTR projects. This is at odds with Queensland, which provides express relief on a secondary sale. Consultation with the state treasurers is occurring to seek to change the relief guidelines to provide a clear exemption from the foreign surcharges in operating BTR projects. To this end, the exemption will facilitate an efficient capital market for BTR assets, which will encourage future development. Just coming back to your comment regarding minimum holding and operating requirements, are you able to explain a little bit more about this, please? For example, there is generally a 15 to 20 year eligibility period, otherwise reassessments and BTR special land tax, in the case of Victoria, may apply. For example, in Victoria, if there is a change in circumstances that results in the land, or part of the land, ceasing to meet the eligibility criteria within the 15 year period, a BTR special land tax will apply. This is designed to recoup the financial advantage provided to the land by the way of the BTR tax benefits. Other jurisdictions issue a reassessment, providing that the relief never applied. This can result in the imposition of interest and penalties on the reassessed tax shortfall. Another issue concerns adjacent sites and the consolidation into a single land parcel. In New South Wales and Victoria, the BTR development must be on a single land parcel. Where multiple parcels are identified as being suitable sites, the land parcels must be consolidated onto a single parcel. The single parcel can have more than one building, but it must be on a single parcel. As many projects are completed in stages, are there any special considerations that need to be managed for stage developments? Absolutely. Stage planning must be very carefully planned and managed. Using Victoria again as an example, an eligible BTR project requires 50 self-contained dwellings. So, if completed in stages, stage one must have at least 50 dwellings and therefore meet the eligibility requirement. Then, if stage two has 35 dwellings, those 35 can be added to the existing eligible 50 dwellings development. In contrast, if stage one has 35 dwellings, it is not eligible. This is the case even if stage two then adds a further 50 dwellings. Further, it also needs to be kept in mind there may be impacts on the concessions and exemptions where the BTR development is not exclusively used by tenants. For example, the general consequence is that there will be a reduction in relief where part of the land parcel is not being used exclusively by tenants or includes commercial businesses such as hairdressers, dry cleaners, etc. Are there any consequences that we should be aware of where a property changes its use from a BTR development? Yes, there are very significant implications. For example, there is a tainting of land when BTR operations cease. This is a very harsh provision common across the jurisdictions. In short, where land was being used as an eligible BTR development and then subsequently ceases, the site cannot access the BTR benefits again later, despite the land use changing back to BTR. For example, if the land was used as BTR, then change to student accommodation, then change back to BTR, the land is forever tainted. There are penalties where, for example, the BTR becomes ineligible during the requisite period, generally 15 years. As such, careful planning and engagement with the revenue officers is required. We strongly recommend applying for pre-transaction private rulings where available, 
to ensure the duty and land tax consequences are understood and managed before the relevant transaction is entered into and the liability arises. Sarah, thank you for your coverage of these issues and your very insightful comments. My pleasure, Tessa. And now I would like to ask you about the various stamp duty and land tax concessions for BTR projects. Can we start with a high-level summary of the stamp duty and land tax regime that applies to BTR projects? With the exception of Tasmania, Northern Territory and the ACT, each Australian state has established a stamp duty and land tax regime, which is intended to encourage investment in BTR developments. Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland have the most comprehensive regimes for BTR developments, which reflects that most BTR developments and indeed housing pressures occur in these states. We will focus our discussions on these states today. These states all have a general exemption available for foreign purchases of land that will be developed into a BTR development. Queensland takes this stamp duty exemption one step further and provides a specific exemption for the acquisition of operating BTR developments and land that will be developed into a BTR development. There's also a general exemption available from land tax during the construction phase for the foreign surcharge land tax and a specific concession for BTR developments during the operating phase with the effect that the land tax is effectively reduced by 50%. BTR developments that are eligible for this concession will also be exempt from the foreign owner surcharge during the operating phase. No Australian state or territory currently has an exemption from the primary stamp duty for BTR developments. And finally, WA and SA have recently introduced BTR-specific concessions, which we'll touch on today. Can you tell me a bit more about the stages of a BTR development and how the specific stamp duty and land tax concessions apply? Perhaps a useful place to start is in Victoria. Victoria has the most beneficial regime for BTR developments and is therefore a really helpful case study to explore how the various state taxes, concessions and exemptions can apply to a BTR development. So in Victoria, the various exemptions and concessions differ depending on the stage of the BTR development. These can be broken down into three stages, being firstly the acquisition phase, which concerns stamp duty and foreign purchaser additional duty, the development phase, which concerns land tax, and finally the operating phase, which also concerns land tax. The BTR-specific concessions are focused on the operating phase. However, general exemptions can be accessed by developers of BTR developments during the acquisition and the development phases. Tessa, can you please work through an example for us? Let's start with a property developer intending to purchase a freehold interest in land in Melbourne for the purpose of constructing and operating a BTR development. What are the starting acquisition issues, please? So stamp duty is our main focus during the acquisition phase. As I mentioned, there's no stamp duty exemption on the acquisition of land to be developed in a BTR development in Victoria or any other state. However, there is a general exemption from the foreign purchaser additional duty and the guidelines for the administration of this exemption specifically provide that land acquired for a BTA development may be exempt. There are specific requirements that must be met, which are the purchaser of the land must be Australian-based, the development must contribute 50 or more dwellings to Victorian housing stock, 
livestock either through constructing or refurbishing these dwellings. We will see that the construction or refurbishment of 50 dwellings is a consistent theme in the BTR concessions and exemptions. And finally, a purchaser must exhibit good corporate behaviour. An application is required to the Victorian Revenue Office to, to obtain this exemption, and this can be a lengthy process, and so we recommend engaging with the Victorian Revenue Office as early as possible to obtain the exemption. Great. Tessa, what then happens during the construction slash development phase? So during the construction and development phase, our focus turns to land tax. The owner of the land will be charged with land tax at rates up to a maximum of 2.55%. And where that owner is foreign, or what's called an absentee owner, the absentee owner surcharge will apply, which is currently 2%, but will increase to 4% for the 2024 land tax year. An exemption is available during the construction and development phase for the absentee owner surcharge, but land tax will still apply. Similar to the exemption from the foreign purchaser additional duty, an application is required to the Victorian Revenue Office and has very similar criteria that must be established, being the owner must be Australian-based and they must contribute to the Victorian economy and community and exhibit good corporate behaviour. And finally, once the development is operational, there are some specific BTR concessions that are available for the owner. These include a BTR concession, which reduces the taxable value of the underlying land by 50%, and a full exemption from the absentee owner surcharge. As you can see from this example, the treatment of the project for land tax purposes in particular changes depending on the phases of the investment in the BTR development. As such, it is really important to understand how the various concessions and exemptions apply, apply, but also to monitor your eligibility to the land tax concessions in the period, in particular throughout the operating period. What are the criteria that an owner must meet in order to be eligible for the BTR land tax concessions in Victoria? And are these different in other jurisdictions? In Victoria, there are quite detailed and specific criteria that need to be met for at least 15 years in order to be eligible for the land tax concession for BTR developments. The criteria for an eligible BTR development are the land must be solely used for an eligible BTR development for at least 15 years, and that is half of the concession period of 30 years. The development must be new or substantially renovated with at least 50 self-contained dwellings that have been constructed or refurbished for the purposes of providing dwellings for lease under a residential tenancy agreement. The BTR development must be owned in a unified ownership structure and managed by a single management entity. The dwellings must be suitable for occupancy on or after the 1st of January 2021 and before 1 January 2032. The dwellings will be suitable for occupancy on the date the occupancy permit is issued. And finally, they must be available for rent under a residential tenancy agreement with an option for a three-year lease term, which is not subject to any restrictions with the exception of some public health and safety requirements or for the provision of social and affordable housing. It is important to note that the term of the lease can be less if requested by the tenant. So these criteria are broadly consistent with the criteria 
in Queensland and New South Wales. However, there are some slight variations which need to be considered in each jurisdiction as these may impact an owner's ability to access the concessions at various stages. By way of example, there are variations in the length of the concession period with Victoria providing a concession rate for 30 years and all other states providing a concession period of 20 years. In New South Wales, there is a requirement that the land be wholly used and occupied as a BTR development as compared to solely used as an eligible BTR development in Victoria. Therefore, the concept of occupation is is different in the jurisdictions. Additional eligibility criteria in New South Wales and Queensland being in New South Wales, they introduce what's called a key worker requirement. This condition requires that at least 10% of the construction work is completed by certain types of workers. And Queensland has introduced a 10% affordable housing component, which requires that at least 10% of the development provides affordable housing. The New South Wales test also refers to compliance with planning and, and the relevant social and affordable housing policies. However, we have not seen any such policies being created at the relevant council level yet. These requirements reflect certain policy objectives of the New South Wales and Queensland governments, or in the case of New South Wales, the mixing of policy objectives. With the affordable housing requirement in Queensland, this will likely impact the types of BTR developments that will be developed. That is, it's more likely to be mixed developments rather than exclusive micro-rent or premium offerings. The affordable housing requirement will also have a cost impact that will need to be considered as part of the financial modelling process. Thanks, Tessa. You mentioned that in WA and South Australia, they both recently introduced BTR concessions and exemptions. At a high level, how do these regimes differ from Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales, please? So both WA and SA have a general exemption from the foreign purchaser duty and a BTR concession from land tax during the operational phase. There are some key distinctions to be aware of um, compared to, say, Victoria. So with the foreign acquirer duty, WA provides a refund only, and this can only be accessed once construction of 10 or more dwellings completes, and that construction must occur within five years of the acquisition. The test in South Australia for ex-grush relief is very similar to Victoria and Queensland, so requiring a significant development and good corporate behaviour. And it can, but it can be accessed where the development will result in 20 or more dwellings as compared to 50 in Victoria. So neither WA or SA have introduced at this time a foreign owner surcharge for land tax. So there's no exemption required, but there will be land tax during the construction and development phase. So the test for the BTR concessions during the operating phase in WA is very similar to Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales, however, allows for 40 or more dwellings and the eligibility criteria in SA to be clarified further in the regulations. So the WA government has recently passed amendments to its exemption for foreign purchases and we expect that the BTR regimes in WA and SA may evolve over the coming years as the BTR developments increase in number in these states. As with all state taxes, there appears to be a lot of complexity and variation across the jurisdictions. Are there any practical issues that taxpayers should be aware of? 
Given the complexity of the state taxes regime for BTR developments, I'd like to leave you with five key takeaways. So firstly, be aware that the eligibility requirements do vary between each state and territory and care must be taken to ensure that the specific retirements are met in the relevant state and territory. Secondly, the exemptions and concessions vary according to the phase of the BTR development, that is acquisition development and the operating phase, and they should be modelled accordingly. Thirdly, care must be taken to ensure that the eligibility requirements are continually met during the exemption or concession period. This is particularly important during the operating phase for the specific BTR concessions and for stage developments, as you discussed earlier, Sarah. Fourthly, secondary and subsequent dealings should be carefully considered and we recommend obtaining advice as early as possible to ensure that the various concessions and exemptions are not impacted. And finally, timing and process. In order to access each of the relevant exemptions and concessions, an exemption will be required to the relevant revenue officers. This can be quite a lengthy process requiring very detailed factual submissions. Tessa, thank you for your insights. Today, you have heard Tessa Livingston and me, Sarah Shaw, discuss the key state taxation challenges and opportunities for BTR developments. Please tune in for part two, where our colleagues Rebecca Lawrence and Matt Irvin will discuss the key income tax and GST issues. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash taxnow or follow our LinkedIn page at KPMG Tax Now Insights for regular updates.